I'm going to tell you this morning that as we approach James chapter 2, in particular verses 14 through 26, I feel a bit like an air traffic controller. I don't know if you're familiar with air traffic controllers, but there are people when you are on an airplane who are sitting in a tower and behind a screen, and in that, on that screen is an airspace that they're responsible for. And any aircraft that comes into that airspace, they have to identify, and they have to organize, and they have to keep from hitting each other. And they have to keep those aircraft organized and identified in their airspace, and then at the airport, they have to line them all up so that they can all land safely in the same place. If it were not for air traffic controllers identifying all the planes and organizing all the planes and landing all the planes, your family vacation this summer will not be what you hope it will be. And praise God they're organizing it. As I come to James chapter 2 in this last bit, I feel a bit like an air traffic controller because James is bringing all kinds of planes, so to speak, into our airspace. I mean, if these verses are our airspace, James has got a whole lot going on. He's talking about faith. He's talking about works. He's talking about justification. He's talking about righteousness. We've got the destitute. We've got demons. We've got Abraham. We've got prostitutes. We've got all kinds of stuff spinning around. And if we're not careful, just like an air traffic controller, if they're not careful to identify everything, organize everything, align everything, and bring it all in safely, mass catastrophe awaits. Chaos awaits. And the reality of it is, if we're not careful, as we go through James chapter 2, 14 through 26, identify all the planes he brings into the airspace, organize them, begin to get them set apart so that we can land them safely, spiritual casualty awaits. Spiritual confusion awaits. Spiritual chaos awaits. And here's the funny thing about it. James wrote these verses to clear up struggles for God's people. He wrote these verses to bring clarity to God's people regarding what real faith, what pure religion really is. So while I feel like I've got to organize all this stuff that he's saying so that we don't get confused and wind up in a massive spiritual personal catastrophe, James actually wrote this so that we didn't. He felt perfectly clear. He didn't have to explain himself. So maybe the problem is with me, but I don't think that's the complete case. The reality of it is James wants to help God's people not fall prey to the disaster of self-deception. We've seen him do this throughout the letter so far. And the particular self-deception that James wants to help God's people not fall prey to and at the same time be able to identify if they've actually already fallen prey to it is that of a counterfeit faith. Of actually believing that they have entered into a rest by the grace of God that they have not yet entered into. That regardless of what they've read, regardless of what they say, regardless of how busy and all different things they may be, the faith that they profess may not be alive. It may not be, as James said, a faith that can save. And they fall and pray to self-deception. They fall and pray to a counterfeit faith. And so I'm going to be upfront with you this morning. I want to tell you James' intention so that as you hear his words and you hear the tone that he has and you hear what he's saying, you understand what's happening. James intends through his words and God intends through Pastor James to fillet your heart wide open. That's the intent. 
He intends to fillet your heart wide open that you, by the grace of God, might be able to peer inside to see what's there, that you could ask yourself, is the faith that I possess and that I profess alive? Is it living and active? Is, as we'll see in just a moment, is it useful in love towards God and in love towards others, or is it dead? Have I fallen prey to a counterfeit faith? Is my faith ineffective to actually save me? Because of what James is trying to do, because of the severity and the importance of what he's trying to do, I want want to tell you this. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey or wherever you would plot yourself on the spectrum of spiritual maturity, if by the grace of God you hear what he's saying through Pastor James in these verses... If you hear what he's trying to communicate and God gives you a glimpse of what's going on in your heart, these verses will change your life regardless of where you are. Regardless of where you are in your journey, regardless of where you are on the spectrum of spiritual maturity, as you hear what God is saying through Pastor James in these verses, I promise you they will change you regardless of where you are. And so because it's that important and because they're that significant, we're going to take our time with them. I'll be really honest. I intended to do this entire section in one week. I intended to just kind of touch and go on some of the big points and keep cruising. But then as we talked about this passage as pastors in the office this week and and began to just share about the freight that's in these verses, again, it hit me that we're not on any particular time schedule. We don't have to be done with James at any particular point so that we can do something else. We'll do something else when we're done with James. So I don't need to do it all this week. And then as I got ready for this week, I realized that we're not going to be able to do it all this week. It might be two, three, four, I don't know. I'm going to watch the clock and when we need to be done, we'll pray. And then we'll pick it back up next week. But if God is kind to us in the next little bit, here's what I want to do. I want to help us identify all the planes, so to speak, in the airspace here. I want us to see all the things that James is introducing here, the big arguments he's trying to make, the ways he's trying to make the argument, that really the subtext that he's bringing in from what he's already said. I want you to see it. I don't want you to be confused by it. I want you to understand it. And then if we've got the time, and I hope we'll have the time if I move quickly enough, we'll try to land one plane, just one. We'll try to get one down. We'll see. All right. So pray for me as we do that, because pray for me and maybe we'll be able to do that. I don't know. Verse 14, let's start there. Verse 14, the first plane that James kind of brings into the airspace here, it really is the big point of what he's trying to communicate. It's the thrust of the argument that he's going to try to unpack in the rest of the verses. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So James is introducing this hypothetical brother or sister in Christ that would come and and profess a faith in Christ, a knowledge of Christ, an understanding of the gospel, maybe write ideas about God, a, a systematic understanding of theology. They got all the arguments, they've got all the understanding, but yet when you look at their life, there seems to be zero impact in their life regarding the things that they actually believe. There has been no transformation in their life. Their faith has produced no real fruit in their life. James is saying, what good is that faith? What good is it? It's a rhetorical question that he expects those listening to answer. Well, it's not. It's useless. 
And an argument that he's going to make is going to unpack that reality, but I want you to see a couple other planes that he brings in here because they're going to come up all the time. And the first one is that word faith. He's going to use faith throughout this entire argument over and over again. And what he is saying is something he has already said. He's just continuing a line of thought. In chapter 2, verse 5, he said that there is a faith, a hope, a confidence, a trust in Christ, who he is for us by the grace of God, that makes us heirs of the kingdom. There is a faith that makes us heirs of the kingdom. There is a faith that saves us, that makes us God's own, that is alive and at work in us. But there's also a faith that's dead. There's also a faith that's ineffective. There's also a faith that cannot save, regardless of what it says, that looks into the word of God like one looks into a mirror and walks away unchanged. It's a hearer of the word, but in their life, they are not a doer of the word. There is no evidence of transformation in their life. There is a faith that makes us heirs, and there is a faith that cannot save us. And James wants to desperately help you to identify those two things so that you can examine what's going on in your heart so that on one hand you can grow in confidence and assurance in who God is for you or on the other hand you can cry out to him for salvation. He doesn't want you to be deceived. So this idea of faith is one that we're gonna come back to over and over again and we're gonna have to keep that plane in its right place so that we can land it. But the other word he introduces here and he's gonna use it throughout the entire argument. If you begin, I'll try to keep the metaphor consistent. Think about it like a plane in the airspace is this idea of works. He introduces it here and it's gonna come up over and over and over and over and over again. So we're gonna talk about it over and over and over and over and over again. And when James talks about works here in chapter two, he is not talking about anything that we do, any activity that we do, any action that we do, any deed that we do, any discipline that we do, that in any way, shape, form, or fashion can earn for us God's love. He's not talking about works that in any way, shape, form, or fashion earn from God our salvation. When James talks about works, he talks about them in the same way that Paul talks about them, the same way that Jesus talks about them, the same way that Peter talks about them, and that these works are works that God prepared beforehand to us to, to walk in, to do, that are evidence of the faith that's alive in us. They're not works that earn anything for us from God. They are things that are evidence of the reality of faith being alive and at work in our hearts. Jesus, Matthew chapter seven, if we have the time, we'll get there later. Jesus says one way that we'll be, be able to identify those who are his, those heirs of the kingdom that James talks about is by our fruit. Living faith, gospel roots in the heart produce real fruit, transformation that's evident in life. So when James is bringing this idea of works in, and we're gonna talk about it over and over and over again, he's not talking about things that you can do to earn salvation, forgiveness, love, learn to earn anything from God. He's talking about things that give evidence, that give witness of the reality of living faith alive and at work in your heart. So we've got these planes in the airspace here. And James starts by asking this rhetorical question, what good is a faith that says all the right things and does all the right things but produces no fruit? You've got all the apologetic arguments. You've read all the most popular authors. You can debate systematics all day long. But when it comes down to it, on a day-in and day-out basis, there's no evidence at all in your own life of picking up your cross to follow Christ and to live a life of obedience for him. You've got all the arguments, you can say all the right things. 
But there seems to be no real fruit or transformation of the gospel in your life. I mean, you, you say all the right things and do all the right things and can argue all the right things, but the people that God has put in your life so that the love that you profess and the mercy that you profess to have received from God through Christ is meant to overflow in love for others, but all you do is mistreat others. No matter what you say, what good is whatever it is you profess to have if it is not evidenced? in love for God and love for others. And we're gonna see that's one of these lines of argument that James is gonna weave all the way through this section. Last week he brought up, if you were with us, and he was talking about the issue of partiality and discrimination, he brought up the idea of the royal law that Jesus had summarized, kind of an executive summary of all the law and the prophets in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. James is going to build his argument regarding what living faith is and what dead faith is around the royal law. Living faith is profitable and useful in love towards God and love towards our neighbor. But dead faith, faith that cannot save, counterfeit faith is not useful or profitable or demonstrated in love towards God or in real love towards the neighbor. That's the argument he's going to build, and he's going to do it through four different illustrations. He's going to start in the very beginning. Let me show them to you because I want you to see how this argument weaves its way through and all these different things and planes that he brings in. We just want to organize them so that you can understand it, and then we'll try to deal with them one at a time. And in verse 15, he, he brings in his first illustration, and he talks about the destitute, a poor brother or sister. And he's going to talk about the fact that dead faith, counterfeit faith, it's not profitable or useful in love towards others. But then he's going to move on and he's going to bring in this illustration regarding demons. Verses 18 and 19. And he's going to sum that up. And he's going to be trying to communicate the argument that counterfeit faith or, or dead faith, it's not profitable or useful in love towards God. And so then he moves on in verse 20. And he brings in this illustration of Abraham. And now these illustrations begin to change. The first two illustrations where he talks about the destitute and uses the demons They're negative illustrations, and his point is to show us what living faith is not, to illustrate what it's not. In a sense, he's illustrating what counterfeit faith is, and he's trying to show that it's not useful or profitable in loving God or loving others. But then he moves to the last two, and the last two illustrations, Abraham and Rahab, they're positive illustrations. He's demonstrating and arguing in those two illustrations what living faith looks like. And his argument is simply this. In the, in the illustration of Abraham, that living faith, alive and at work in the heart, is profitable and evidenced in real love for God. And then in Rahab, he shows how living faith in the heart is demonstrated and evidenced in real love for your neighbor, real love towards others. What living faith is it? What living faith is? How can you see it? How can you identify it? How can you recognize counterfeit faith? How can you recognize whether or not you fall and pray to self-deception? How can you recognize and be confident and assured of real faith alive and at work in you? That's what he's trying to get after. So as quickly as I could do it, I think I've tried to identify everything. I may have missed something. Those are all the planes that he's got in the airspace, though. And so we've got to get them lined up, and we've got to get them organized, and we've got to try to land them. So I'm going to try. I'm going to try to land one plane, all right? One. And the first plane I'm going to try to land is, is the illustration of the poor brother or sister. And it starts in verse 15. And the point that James is trying to make for God's people is simply this. We need to identify 
the reality of what counterfeit faith is. And one way we can identify whether or not our faith is real or whether or not we fall and pray to a counterfeit faith is that real faith is evidenced in love towards others. But counterfeit faith, it's not profitable at all. It's not useful at all. It's not seen at all in any way in love towards others. Look at it in verse 15. Let's pick it up there. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is that kind of faith? There is a counterfeit faith, a faith that is dead, a faith that is not useful. It does not produce the fruit of love towards others. And so the situation is this. A brother or sister in the local church, in the body of believers, he's presented to you. He comes to you. She comes to you. You're made known about them. And they don't have what they need. And now we've got to be very careful with this because in, in the 21st century, in, in our vernacular, we don't use need the same way James uses need. He's not saying that this brother or sister needed a new iPhone or a bigger iPhone or a bigger house or, or newer clothes or the clothes that they're wearing, they're two seasons old. They're not cool anymore. They need new clothes so that they can be trendy and they can be with the times. So you and I use need that way. Because we don't face the reality of what he's talking about, we tend to butcher the word, and when we read it, we don't hear it for what it really is. What he's saying is that this brother or sister in the local body has come to you, has been made known to you, you found out about them, and it's not that their clothes aren't cool, it's that they're wearing the only pair of pants they own. That's it. It's not just that they're not in style, it's all they've got. And it's not just the food's not organic, so they don't have any They can't feed themselves. So James is saying, what what good is a profession of faith? What what good is all the knowledge? What good is everything you say? What good is all the activity you're a part of if a brother or sister in Christ comes to you or or a need is made known to you and your response is simply this, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Now on the surface, that doesn't sound all that bad, does it? There's nothing inherently wrong was saying, go in peace. Be warm and be filled. In fact, that first part is a biblical Old Testament blessing. There's nothing wrong with that inherently, except for the fact that the day, people in James's day are just like you and I, and we tend to use religious words and sentiment like this to cover over an unwillingness to actually engage. And so if you get on your computer and you go look this verse up and you get on a Bible program and you let it show you the original Greek and let it translate for you what it actually said, you'll find out when you look at this that this phrase can be properly translated in two different voices. They're, they're both actually correct. You can translate this phrase in the middle voice and you can translate this phrase in the passive voice and both are horrible, but both touch on things we do in our own heart. Both touch on the realities of of this faith that we find ourselves deceived by. If you translate this phrase in the middle voice, it's the same thing as saying, go warm and feed yourself. As if they possibly could. Because you know when you and I find out about needs regarding other people in their lives, we decide whether or not they're worthy of our resource. Can they really not eat? Can they really not get themselves some new pants? Translating this in the middle voice is the same thing as saying, go and warm and feed yourself as if you could. That's horrible, right? You'd never say that. Well, translating it in the passive voice is no better. 
The passive voice is the same thing as saying, stay warm and well-fed, as if they would if they could. So go feed yourself and get yourself some pants as if they could, but they're choosing not to, or stay warm and and get clothed and stay well-fed as if they're just choosing not to do it. Both are horrible, but both in our own way are things that we tend to say to people when we say, oh, I heard about your need. Brother, go in peace. May God bless you. May God be with you. May God care for you, but I'm not going to. You know, may God give you food, may God provide for you, but, but I'm not going to. James says, what good is that? I mean, what good is that faith? What's actually at work, in a, at work in your heart? James says that that faith is useless. It's dead. It's ineffective. It's useless. It's not demonstrated in love towards one another, in love towards your neighbor. And here's the thing. Not only is it useless in relation to your neighbor, not only has that person that God has meant to be blessed as you give them the needs that they have, as you meet the needs that they have, as you realize that God has gifted you with everything this brother or sister needs to be warm and to be well-fed, not only are they missing out on being blessed by you and encouraged by you the way that God had intended, but you're missing out on something too. So the problem is when you and I think that being born in the 20th or the 21st century And in a place like this country, in a a situation like the majority of us are born into where we don't really understand what it is that the people in this illustration were facing, you and I tend to interpret the blessings that God has given us and the blessings that God has shown us as things that were meant to terminate on us. That the primary purpose for the way that God has blessed us is to benefit us. And in thinking that way about them, we think about the ways that God has blessed us kind of like a cul-de-sac. They're just supposed to circle around us and pool around us. God's blessed us in the way that he has so that our 401s can grow and our house can grow and our cars can grow and our closets can grow and there's nothing wrong with 401s, there's nothing wrong with houses, there's nothing wrong with cars, there's nothing wrong with clothes, except when we think that God has blessed us so primarily those things can grow. See, God blesses us and he calls us his own and he makes us his stewards. And he means for us to see all the ways that he has blessed us, especially materially, all the things that he has blessed us with as means by which we can meet the needs of others for his glory and their good. We're meant to see ourselves as stewards, not like cul-de-sacs, but like pipelines. And when you and I are made known of needs, especially in the local body, let's just talk of the local body because that's the illustration James gives. When you and I are made known of needs in the local body, brothers or sisters in Christ who are in these situations and we recognize that we have the gifts or the resources to meet that need and we choose not to thinking that those gifts and those resources were given to us by God to pull around on us, we miss out on the encouragement and the blessing that God means for us to use those gifts to bless and encourage another. James says, what good is that? It's useless. It's dead. It's not real. He's already said at the end of chapter one, true religion before God that's undefiled, that's pure, is simply this, to visit. Remember, to to take proactive responsibility for those in need, the widow and the orphan, talking about everyone that is in that kind of need. Pure religion, true religion, that's undefiled before God. It meets the needs of those around us. Living faith, real faith alive and at work in our hearts. Fruit that saves, or faith that saves, it produces fruit. Counterfeit faith, dead faith is useless. 
It's not profitable at all or evidenced in love towards our neighbor. Living faith, James is arguing, produces fruit in our lives. And he's not making it up, though. He's just echoing the same thing that Jesus had said. I told you we'd get there. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, it's by their fruit that you'll recognize those who are his. How will you know those who are really his? I mean, how will you know? Everybody can stand up and say the same thing, read the same book, quote the same things. How are you going to know who's really his? He says, you're going to know them by their fruit. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but bad trees bear bad fruit. And in this argument, dead trees don't bear any fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. So Jesus says in Matthew 7, 20, thus by their fruit, you'll recognize them. You'll know who's mine. Living faith produces fruit. See, James's argument, just when you slow down in the very beginning here, is, is someone who claims to have faith in Christ, and yet when they recognize that they have the means to meet the needs of a brother or sister in Christ, they've been gifted in a way to meet the needs that are brought to them, yet they refuse to do so for whatever reason they come up with. And this gets into what we talked about last week with partiality and the way that we view particular people and the way that we try to make particular people earn our mercy. James says, if you recognize by the grace of God that God has gifted you in such a way or resourced you in such a way to meet a need of another brother or sister in Christ and you refuse to, there's no reason at all for you to actually believe that the faith that you profess is alive and at work in you. He says, we've got reason to talk. We've got reason to wrestle. We've got reason to deal with this. John said the same thing, 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, if anyone has material possessions, if God has gifted you, and he has, every single person in here, if God has gifted you, he's resourced you, and if you have these things and you see your brother in need, another brother or sister in Christ, you see their need, they're in need, they actually are in a situation where they cannot meet the need that they have, and yet you have no pity on them, John says, because how can you know the love of God is in you? Living faith produced by the work of God's grace in your heart produces fruit. See, the argument over and over again, we're going to come back to it and say it over and over again, the way that we love others, this faith that is worked out in our life, the way that we care for others, and the way that James is talking about loving our neighbor and loving others by meeting these needs, these works don't earn our salvation, but the Bible says over and over again, they're the way that it gives evidence of the, of the gospel at work in us. It's the way that we can see it. The way that we can know and have confidence and assurance that it's alive and at work in us. It's evidenced by fruit. So let me try to land the plane. I want you to ask yourself this. Is your life bearing the fruit of a living faith? As the gospel is taking root, it begins to work out transformation in your heart and your life. The expectation is that there would be an overflow, an outflow from your life of real love towards others. Not perfection, progress though. As you examine your heart, and by the grace of God, if he would do the work of just opening up your heart, 
is you would allow the Holy Spirit to examine it and you ask yourself, is the, is the fruit of living faith evidenced in my life? We're not talking about perfection, but is there even an inkling, a, a, an instinct, an, an impulse in your life coming from the mercy with which you've received by God to show that kind of mercy to others? Is there a living faith producing fruit in your life? Now, there's no reason to think that James giving this example of the way that you meet the needs of a brother or sister in Christ in the local church is restrictive. That's the only place where this love is meant to, to show. He's just giving us an example, an illustration of what's most practical. It's those closest to us that we tend to know the most about, right? But the reality of the gospel, and we looked at it last week and we'll see it over and over again through the letter, the reality of the gospel is simply this. We are called by God to love our neighbor the way that we've been loved by him. We, we talked about that last week. So this impulse this reflex, this overflow from our heart that's meant to pour out of our lives from the work of the gospel in us is meant to be shown, it's meant to be evidenced not just in love towards brothers or sisters here, but what about our neighbors? What about even those who, who are enemies? We're not supposed to love them as well? Is there... So even an impulse. I was thinking, I was like, what if I sat down? Like, what if what if Pastor James was here? If I got to sit down and Pastor James got to come up here, he saw in 21st century America, he, he recognizes that it's not the same thing as the congregation he was writing to and the situations he was writing to. But I imagine, what if Pastor James was standing here? What would he say to us? I mean, in a day and age in which information travels at a speed with which we cannot comprehend, and at the same time we recognize that because of the work of God in Christ, because of the gospel, we're brothers and sisters not in this room, but we have brothers and sisters around the world. And we know with a click of a button right now that hundreds and thousands of them will die in the coming days, weeks, and months from preventable diseases, from starvation, and all the resources needed to meet those needs have been pulled up like a cul-de-sac in the church in the, in the West, in particular in this country, and James was standing right here in front of us, what would he say? I mean, all he would have to say is, show me. I, Show me your faith. Can I see it? Is there any evidence pouring out of your life from your delight in the way that God has loved you, the grace that God has shown you, the mercy that God has given you, has your delight and your love for him, is it overflowing out of your life to others? God gives us this morning through Pastor James the grace of self-examination. It's not always the most pleasant, but it normally is the most beneficial. He gives us an opportunity this morning to examine the reality of, of what's going on in our hearts. Real love is meant to pour out of a life where real faith is growing. Living faith is meant by God to produce real fruit. See, James makes this argument at the end, and we're gonna spend a lot more time in the coming weeks on it, but he gives this argument at the end when he brings Rahab into the story. And I love that he brings Rahab in. You may not be familiar with Rahab, some of you may know the story, but Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. 
When God sent spies over to Jericho to spy out the city because God said he was going to give that big, giant, fortified city into the hands of his people, he sent spies over there. And the spies came to Rahab, and Rahab led them into her house, led them into her apartment. And the king of Jericho came to Rahab because he heard that the spies were there. He brought his men. He came to Rahab. Now, just imagine what it was like to be a prostitute in the first century Jericho. The woman had been mistreated, had been abused. I mean, it's the lowest place you could be on the social ladder in that day. And now the king has come with his men. She could expect to continue to be abused and mistreated even in that moment. But what did she do? She hid the spies of Israel. She didn't give them over to the king. Then she gave them a way out of her place down the wall so that they could go back to Israel. And in days to come, God would indeed do what he said he would do. And he would give Jericho over into the hands of his people. But there was something that Rahab said while the spies were there before she let them go. And listen to what she said. She looked at the spies and it's in Joshua chapter two. She said, when we heard of what your Lord had done, that he had released you from slavery in Egypt, that he had passed you over the great sea, that he had delivered your enemies into your hands, she said, our hearts melted. And we knew the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and he's God on the earth beneath. She made a profession of faith in the one true God, the God of Israel. Was it real? Was it just opportunistic? James says, here's how you know. Real faith is seen in real love towards others. Real faith is useful and effectual in love towards others. Rahab's actions towards the spies of Israel, protecting them and letting them get back to safety, it didn't earn God's love. It didn't merit her salvation. It was evidence of the faith that was alive and at work in her. Dead faith is useless ineffective in love towards others, but but living faith, real faith, faith that saves, faith that makes you an heir of the kingdom, it is profitable and it is useful and it is evidenced in real love towards others. This morning, we're going to have a chance to respond to God's word. And again, you're given the grace of self-examination, of reflection. Have the roots of the gospel really begun to dig in? I mean, is there, is there even, by the grace of God, if you allow God to show you, to open your heart, to show you, is there even a, a mustard seed of faith in God burying into your heart? Is there even the impulse, the, the inclination, or the desire for that love to overflow out of your life in love towards others, in compassion towards those around you? If you let him show you and you see that there's not, praise God. Praise God, if he shows you that you, you've fallen prey to self-deception, there's a, a counterfeit faith, you've got, you've got real ideas, you've got real answers, you've got real words, but there's been no real transformation in your life. Praise God, that's grace. This is the morning for you to cry out to God for salvation. And if by the grace of God, you ask him to show you what's in your heart and you see that indeed the gospel has taken root in your life, it's changing you. You're not perfect, but there's progress, there's growing. There's the impulse, the inclination, the desire to love others with the love with which you've been shown, regardless of what it may cost you. Praise God. Take time this morning to thank him for it. Ask him to expand your delight in him, to grow your satisfaction in him, because here's the thing. The only way that we'll ever grow in love towards others is by growing in our love to God. Only by, where, by when we're increasingly satisfied in the gospel and in his grace to us will that begin to increasingly overflow out of us to others. 
Walking out of here feeling guilty about these things and trying from the, from the standpoint and the motivation of guilt to love others and to meet the needs of others has a very short shelf life. It's not going to last very long. You're going to have to come back and someone's going to make you feel guilty again because it's not going to last. The only way to grow in real love for others, to see that overflow out of your lives consistently and in an ever-increasing way, to see your heart not enslaved by the possessions that you have, but to see yourself as a steward of those things and the blessing of God towards others is to increase your delight in Christ. That's it. That's the only thing that'll do it. And so this morning, you're going to have a chance to reflect we're gonna give you a couple of minutes and it's a grace, it's a gift from God to examine your heart and to let him show you and then we're gonna respond. As God's people who have tasted his grace, we're going to remember one who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he took on the form of a servant. He became man and Jesus lived the life that we were created to live and then died the death we deserve to die for our sin. No greater no greater gift of love, no greater gift of sacrifice, no greater gift of mercy has ever been given. And we get a chance to remember that and respond to that in gratitude. And as our delight in his love for us increases, the gospel will produce an overflow. It'll flow out of us in love towards others. Let me pray for us this morning and then we'll respond. Father, thank you that you love us too much to allow us to leave this place deceived. Lord, you love us too much to allow us to fall prey to self-deception and counterfeit faith. This morning, I don't know exactly what needs to happen in every heart in here, whether this is the first time they've ever heard anything like this or whether it's the first time in a long time. But God, you know what needs to happen in every heart here. Show us this morning the, the roots of living faith that are alive in our hearts, that we might thank you for it. We might cry out to you to expand our delight in you and to give us greater opportunity to show your love to others. And for some in here, show the fact that we've fallen prey to a, a counterfeit faith. Show us that it, it's a faith that can't save. It's full of information and knowledge, but it's useless in love towards others. That this may be the morning that we can cry out for salvation. Lord, I ask that you would do this for your glory in the name of your son and for our joy. Amen.